As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. Steve, tell listeners what you cover on the show. The Boost is our podcast, and the tagline is Conversations with People Promoting Mental Health, and that's what it is. So it's marketers, company executives, therapists, and mental health advocates talking about what they're doing to move this industry and this important thing called mental health forward. Amazing. And where can people subscribe? I'm big on LinkedIn, so you can find us there, just uh, slash Steve Turney, or you can find the show at marketingpodcasts.net or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, the podcast that introduces you to the rich world of storytellers who share their personal journeys, creative processes, and the stories behind their stories, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and I'm thrilled to be part of your writing journey. If you're an aspiring writer, a literary enthusiast, or simply someone who believes in the transformative power of words, you've come to the right place. Every week, we'll pop the cork on the world of successful storytellers and give you a healthy pour of inspiration, insight, and empowerment. My mission is to help writers like you realize your full potential the transformative and therapeutic power of writing. Whether you're just starting your literary voyage or looking to refine your craft, I'm here to provide you with the knowledge, inspiration, and encouragement you need to embark on your own storytelling adventure. So, are you ready to uncork your story and let your creativity flow? Uncorking a story is about to begin. Sit back, relax, and let the transformative magic of storytelling whisk you away. Welcome to uncorking a story. Well, hey, down, welcome to another exciting episode of Uncorking a Story. I'm Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to have you with me as we dive into another great story to uncork. Today, I want to remind you to please follow Uncorking a Story on all social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Our handle is at Uncorking a Story on all of those platforms. And a quick note on YouTube it's been a great, 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 fantastic growth vehicle for our show. It's also a great way for me to monetize this, but that's another story. And uh, it's a fun way for me to interact with the audience because it is really one of the only platforms where I can use to, to post episodes and actually engage in a dialogue with the audience. You know, whether you want to talk about your reflections on each guest, and we've had some great discussions or conversations on uh, certain guests on YouTube, as well as, you know, you making fun of my bad attempts at humor. You might say things like, Mike, why are you always asking people what their favorite TV show from childhood was? Well, you know, I just can't get enough, 
you know, talk about the Brady Bunch or Little House on the Prairie, which for some reason, those two shows come up all the time. Uh, in all honesty, it is a great place for me to engage with the audience. So uh, please continue to engage on YouTube. And of course, um, you know, subscribe to our channel on YouTube and, and like, rate, subscribe to Uncorking the Story wherever you get your podcast. Now, today in the show, we have Joan Meyerson, who spent most of her career writing, producing and directing documentaries before penning her first novel. Uh, her first novel is called Who Needs Paris? Turns out we all need Paris. That's what she says anyway. Uh, that's what she says. Jeez. Oh my gosh. Um, sometimes I wish I had a co-host so I could, you know, so they could make fun of me when I say things like that. But actually our conversation, my conversation with Joan had me reminding, uh, reminiscing about a story from my mid twenties. I was in Paris and I was at a conference repping a startup called Dynamic Logic. And my exit from that venture is actually a lesson in what not to do if you want to become wealthy through a startup, but um, I'm going to save that story for another time. Um, at the time, though, back in the, I think this was 1999, my boss, a guy named Nick, Nick Nyan, great guy, suggested that we rent motor scooters and drive around the city. Now, if you've ever been to Paris or any European city for that matter, you know that people drive a little bit differently than they do here. It's almost like everybody there is driving like they're from Massachusetts. And I say that with love to all of my Massachusetts listeners, but you know, you know that you guys just are not good drivers. Um, for context, I've never been on a scooter before this trip to Paris. Um, never. The only thing on two wheels I'd ever been on was, was my mountain bike. Um, the only thing I really had going for me was that I, I remembered how to read I couldn't speak French, but I could read, you know, many words in French. So I, I could decipher like some of the road signs. Um, of course, that does not solve for the bad drivers. Anyway, we get the scooters and my boss, Nick, pulls up next to me and he, he pushes up his visor on his helmet and he says, tonight we ride. And I, I remember that and I, I always get a kick out of it. So we, we did do Paris by motor scooter. I almost died five times. But it was a blast. We really did have a good time. And, and that's when I realized that for the most part, I've lived a very sheltered life. I always played it safe. If I was anywhere on business, I'd, I'd never really explore whatever city I was in, preferring to go you know, either to the office I had to go to, to the focus group facility where I was running focus groups at, or just someplace close to my hotel. Like I, I was never, ever going outside of my comfort zone. And you could call me boring and that would not be inaccurate. You know, I learned, though, through that experience in Paris that I really did need to get pushed out of my comfort zone. And once I did, I, I had a lot of fun. I will admit that was the one thing I remember of that trip. I don't remember the prospective clients I met. I don't remember much about the dinner I had, except for the creme brulee at the end of the meal. That was fantastic. But I do remember the motor scooters. Um, and it reminds me, though... That as a writer, sometimes, sometimes, I don't want to speak for you, I will speak for myself, we can get too comfortable in our writing. You know, we, we write similar plots. We have recognizable characters who have similar flaws. We use the same adjectives. Sometimes we need that push to challenge ourselves to make our writing better and to grow as writers. That's why feedback from people like agents and editors and beta readers are, is so valuable. You know, these are not people who are just being critical. They have a vested interest in our success. They have a business. If, if it's your editor, if it's your writer, 
um, writer, your agent, you know, your publisher, you know, they've got a vested interest in your success. They want to see you flourish and grow as a writer. So they tell you, get out of your comfort zone. When they tell you that, listen to them. Now, the only way to grow as a writer is to challenge yourself. And, you know, you need to have more experiences in life, you know? And that's one way, one way to feel your own creativity, have more experiences, maybe fly to Paris, rent a scooter, see the city on two wheels. It was a blast. We had we had a good time. Uh, we also got caught in the rain that that time, um, <laughs> which was not fun because uh, we were soaking wet. We jumped into this Guinness pub. I think it was actually called the Guinness pub. We befriended uh, me and my boss were, were you know, amateur musicians. <laughs> that's putting it kindly. Uh, but we were big music lovers and we were in this like rock and roll Guinness pub and we befriended this other music lover and we had to mime our conversation because he didn't speak English and our French was terrible. But we had a we had a good, good, good time. If I ever get Nick on the show, we'll, we'll take a little walk down memory lane because that was uh, that was a very memorable, memorable trip. Anyway, my goal on a quirking story is always to use this as a platform to help make you a better writer. So that's today's lesson. Get out of that comfort zone of yours. Now, let's uncork Joan Meyerson's story. Joan Meyerson is an award-winning writer, director, and producer of documentaries and television programs for which she won two Writers Guild of America awards. The dramatic accounts she wrote about uh, vets and military families reconfirmed her belief that the best stories come from real life, a belief she has followed in writing. Having told the stories of others, she now tells one of her own, inspired by the two times she lived in Paris. Joining me today to talk about her career and first novel, Who Needs Paris, is Joan Meyerson. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Joan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you here, Joan. And, and tell me, where does your story as an author begin? Well, you know, I didn't really think of myself as an author. I never really thought about writing. But for some reason, uh, back in elementary school, I think it was about the fifth grade, we were given some kind of test, uh, IQ test or whatever it was. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a notice that I had been picked from my class to go to a special writing class once a week at a neighboring elementary school. Uh, that in this one community, there were maybe 10 or 15 elementary schools. And so I went not knowing anything. And uh, at one point, I think it was right after summer vacation, and uh, one of our first uh, assignments was was to write something uh, about what we did. What did we do last summer? <laughs> and I had gone with my family to Mexico. We had this was a very um, a sort of a pioneer thing to do back at that time. We just left in a car and drove down Mexico, not knowing where we were going to stop every night in hotels or whatever. But there was this one town, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but. Uh, that was famous. Uh, it was an old town with old architecture and everything on a hill. And it was famous for its cemetery of all things. Uh, and the rumor was that they had mummies there. And so <laughs> here I am, 11 years old, and my family uh, decides we're going to go see the mummies. And we ended up, I couldn't believe what it was really going to be. I thought maybe we'd be all wrapped up like Egyptians, mummies, you know. But we walked down, we start going through this near, uh, spiraling staircase down below the cemetery. And all of a sudden you see stacks of bodies without wrap, not wrapped up at all, but mummies. And it was sort of, I mean, I couldn't believe I was seeing such a thing. Uh, and it was so bizarre that I just... 
you know, I just looked. So anyway, guess what my writing, what was my writing uh, for the my writing assignment, what I did last summer. And so I, I got uh, in front of the yeah. class and told, told them about the mummies. And that was it. I had a great audience. <laughs> Everyone loved it. And then I thought after that, wow, I guess maybe I could tell a story. So after that, though, I still didn't think about being a writer. I, But I did know that whenever I saw something important, something that was seemed to be uh, relevant to me, I just had to write it down. And I would write in my journal certain things too about my own personal life. And that went on for a long time, but I still didn't think about being a writer. And I just fell into it because I fell into a lot of things. <laughs> and that's how I found my life's, my life's uh, uh, mission, I guess you might say. But because um, I was, I was, I did, go to college to Berkeley, graduated, went to Europe for a year, and that's in Paris, That's so that's part of my novel in, this, in 64, and really didn't want to come back, but I had already signed up for graduate school in history. I went, and it just everything seemed so different when I got back to, got back to the United States. It just wasn't France. I just, you know, and the, the Studying, studying history in graduate school was much more theoretical and, and mathematical and statistical and all those things I didn't like too much. So I came home for the summer to L.A. and just looked for a summer job. And before I knew it, I had gotten a job not knowing anything about it, but as an associate producer on a live TV talk show. <laughs> I stayed there for a year and... Uh, I loved it, but then I was let go because the producer's wife had been the one that had been the associate producer. She had been ill. She came back. So then I went for another job. Uh, oh, I had to find another job. Better. I mean, really. What? I said the nerve of her getting better. You know. That's- yes, <laughs> that's what I thought. But this is part of my philosophy. You never know what's going to happen when that happens because I could have just stayed at that one place and the local TV station and I didn't know. But anyway, I had met some people through my boss who were making documentaries. And uh, when I went to an employment agency, they told me about a, a, uh, a, how can I say it, Uh, an organization that made, that was very famous for making documentaries. And they had an opening for a secretary. And of course, at that time, the only jobs for women were secretaries. So I said, okay, I'll take, you know, I'll have the interview. And I got the job. And uh, the man who wanted me to work for him said, you know, they aren't paying for anybody for, they aren't paying for somebody more than a secretary, but I, I really need you to do other things. And I found myself starting to write for him. And this, that's sort of how it began because I fell in love with documentaries. I managed to work my way up and you write the narration for documentaries and you have to tell the story. It's not just writing. You find out that uh, that telling a story involves uh, images and action and interviews with other people, and you create a story that way. And the more and more that I was making documentaries, the more and more I saw how important uh, stories are coming from real life, being yeah. authentic. When, so when you were... Okay. When you were an undergraduate at Berkeley, were you studying history or was your major something else? I, yeah, I majored, I majored in history. But again, I majored in history because the teacher that I had for Western civilization was so interesting. Uh, he would tell stories 
about uh, historics, his, you know, the, all the his, all historic people, and he would relate uh, literature to history and what you know the different if you're going through from the you know year one to nineteen whatever it was, uh, how society changed, and it was reflected in in the novels that you would read, and he would assign you know those kinds of things for us, and that's what made history interesting. Again, history became interesting because you got to know the people that were involved in history and not just, you know, a president or a dictator, but everybody else. Yeah. So not, that's not, not just the facts, but it's the story, right? The, the story. I mean, right. it's, it's a story. Story, story is actually written in the title history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So basically I just love stories. <laughs> that's yeah. what happened. When, when I'm also curious. So it sounds like you were in Paris in 1964. That's um, right. What was it like coming back to the U.S. after spending a year in Paris and, and, you know, 1964, 1965, there were some major cultural shifts happening. That's right. In the United States. And coming back to California, I mean, um, what what was that like? Well, it was weird. It was very weird. After spending a year abroad uh, and sort of feeling like you had become part of that culture, which was different than California culture, uh, and I, fe- I felt, I started graduate school, but I felt really sort of uh, distanced from the rest of the people. I felt like I couldn't really communicate with them. I was just, had learned to live another kind of life. And that was probably part of why uh, when I did come home for summer vacation and got this other job, I was thrilled because I was meeting all kinds of other people, people that, uh, you know, from everybody, from Ronald Reagan to Phyllis Diller, uh, and I, I felt like I was broadening my horizons more than if I was just in a, in an academia. Yeah. Well, tell me when, when, you know, you, you join, um, this documentary film company and, you know, you, you got a job as a, a secretary. When, when did you get your first break, um, to, to start and t- tell me what that first break was? Was it, was it writing? Was it producing? Yeah. Was it, and what was yeah. it? Yeah. Well, first of all, the second person, so the first person that that hired me, you know, said that he couldn't afford to pay for anything more than a secretary. So I was a secretary, but please, would you please start writing some things for me, some synopsis of different TV series or something. So I did. And then he was let go. And the next uh, boss that I had also wanted me, was my secretary, he was, I was his secretary, Uh, but he had, he was in charge of writing proposals for shows. Uh, the name of the company is David Wolper, by the way. And you may know that name from uh, from the, the famous series uh, called Roots that, that he sure. produced. Yeah. But before that, he was doing all kinds of others. He was the major documentary uh, filmmaker uh, on television at that time. Uh, anyway, so so this the guy that was my second boss, he wanted me to start writing proposals for new shows. So, because he didn't have time to do it. So I did it and I became sort of known as the princess of writing proposals. <laughs> they liked my proposals. Proposal and, princess, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and they sold some shows, you know, because of it. And But it's still, still, they were not giving me the job. And then one of his colleagues had was, was going to produce his first documentary. And it was called... Uh, Big cats, little cats. They were doing all kinds of shows on, on animals. And um, 
he he liked me and, and my boss recommended me and he said, you know, you, you should hire Joan as your associate producer because she really is good. And but the bosses, you know, they were giving these kind of jobs to all the guys who had been following the same path I had been. Uh, but they asked me to um, to write a whole proposal, a whole outline of what this documentary could be. Find all the stories, you know, how would it be? together, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that. And then they, they said, all right, you know, but you know, Joan, if you take this job, you will no longer have job security. The secretary has job security, but a producer doesn't. <laughs> and I said, okay, I don't care. <laughs> and anyway, that's, so that's how it started. I was associate producer. Then I could become a producer. And finally, the same guy that gave me the job as associate producer asked me to write another proposal for him. And I said, nah, uh no more proposals until I get to be a producer. And he said, okay, if you write this proposal and I sell the job, I sell this the story, you can produce it. And he was good to his word. And that started the work. Yeah, I was going to say, did you get that in writing? <laughs> no, I didn't. But it's a good thing he was, he was good. To, he, was, he, he came through, yeah. yeah. So well, that's, it's, it, my life has sort of been like that. Things happen, you know, and you just have to, go with it yeah well it seems like um you know i think things happen but but you also have to have talent um you know you can't completely divorce yourself from that it sounds like you you not only had talent but a, also a track record um uh-huh. you know as well and it seems like yeah. uh you know the uh it, it it absolutely did work out for you obviously you had a, a, a great career in in the space but um tell me about um who needs Paris? Uh, what's what's the uh, what, what can you share with us about about your latest book? Oh well, um, I guess the the, uh, the the three words that are important is that from who needs Paris is we all need Paris. <laughs> that's, that's that's what you find out at the end of the book. <laughs> we all need Paris, but. Uh, it, it actually it was inspired, as you say, by the two times that I lived in Paris. Uh, at the time, I didn't think of of writing a novel. I was uh, first I was in you know just really finishing college. That was the, in 1964, and uh, not knowing what I wanted to do. And then by 1977, I had been uh, producing shows and uh, writing and directing them too. Um, and so I really hadn't thought about. Uh, about writing about it, but they were momentous experiences for me. You know, certain things happened that were just kind of really struck me, and I would write a little bit about them, some journals and notes, and I had letters that I got from people or that I sent to people that I kept in a big box. And um, every once in a while, I think about writing a story. Mainly, I was thinking about doing the one from the 60s, but it just didn't seem like enough of a story. But and nor did the story from the '70s seem like enough of a story. Something was missing, and I wasn't sure what. But, so in the meantime, I kept, uh, <clears throat> as I say, producing or writing documentaries, or like I did a lot of things with PBS, like the National Memorial Day concert. And and as you said before, when you know getting involved with that, the more you do those kinds of things, the more you see how how important um, real life is to your stories. And, uh, but I did it for a long time and it became a time when I thought, you know, I've been telling other people's stories. It's maybe time to tell 
my story, but I wasn't quite sure what to do. As I say, what do I do with the 60s? Do I do the 70s? And and then I I had the, the, the brainstorm, and that was I realized that the two really needed to go together, one without the other, because the one in the 70s, she wouldn't be who she was unless she had gone through, you know, what she had gone through in the 60s. And there was something that needed still to be resolved. And so uh, I realized that that was the crux of this, this novel that I wanted to write. And so that's what happened. So, so that's why we go back and forth in time every chapter, because it's like peeling an onion. Layer by layer, we are getting down to the core of what this woman, Kate, uh, is dealing with, and as she grows and sheds some of the stuff that she's that she's been afraid to talk about or afraid to to go forward with in her life, we begin to find out what it was that that really needs to be attended to, that she needs to to deal with, and whether or not she can do it is also the crux of the story. You know, it's not easy, but as she's she knows. Once she finally goes back to Paris, she swears she's never going to go back to Paris after the 60s. She's avoided it like the plague. Uh, she doesn't want to go back, but she has this sometime freelance job with a French producer, um, helping him produce shows in, in California. And all of a sudden he asks her if she'll come to Paris and help him produce this documentary at the Deauville Film Festival in Paris. I mean, well, it's in Deauville, but, but the office is in Paris. She doesn't want to go, but she knows that her life's really going nowhere. She's 35 and she hasn't really moved on. And she somehow in the back of her mind thinks maybe this is my last chance you know, to figure it out. So she goes and discovers a whole other Paris for her, you know, one that's bright and shiny and, and full of opportunity and much more uh, open to women uh, who are pursuing careers. And um, so that's that's sort of what <clears throat> that's that's really what uh, that's what the story's about and what happens to her then in the seventies and, and and also then being able to deal with what with in the past. Yeah, yeah, it's almost a kind of a mystery, right? It's a little mysteries unfolding as you're learning more yes. about about her. But is is it also fair to to say it's a Sort of a later stage coming of age type story for her. Oh yes, yes, you're right. Absolutely, I, I, I say that it's coming of age at the age of thirty five. Yeah. You know, I think there's so many of us think of coming of age stories, you know, of teenagers and adolescents. But uh, yeah. hey, you can come of age at any time in your life, and, right. and why That's why not right. at thirty five? I, I yeah. love, yeah. I love it. I I'm mean, still waiting to come of age. <laughs> I'd like to start it all over again, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, she 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 really does think about that. That's part of it because she realizes, you know, from her early twenties to her mid thirties, she hasn't done much. You know, she she are not more than she, you know she wants to do, and uh, and if she doesn't do this, she's not never. So when going back to Paris at that time, it really is the time that she comes of age you're absolutely right interesting well i know we can't talk too too much more about the book because we don't want to okay. spoil anything yeah. for uh the uncorking story listeners i i'm curious um you know having you, you've been to paris a couple times in your life 
Do you have a special memory of, of your own time in Paris? Maybe going back to that, that first time? Special memory. Well, um, I don't know. All the special memories uh, were born from, from some of my, my real life stories. So uh, I don't know if I want to go into that too much. You can choose not to respond. but i guess one of the things one of the things that that our character is she decides that she wants to learn you know the french savoir-faire she wants to learn how to be a french person that will be her goal and uh she gets a job as an au pair you know that is and living with a family and uh and tutoring the children and she sets out to you know to Cut her hair in the style that June Seberg and Breathless has, and to and to uh, wear the clothes. You know, her American clothes go into the garbage can, and <laughs> um, so those those are some of the things that happened to me. <laughs> All right, Very I was good. determined to become très français. <laughs> <laughs> Well, very good. Very good. It's one of my, I, I've been once in my life and I've, I'd only been there on business. Um, okay. I, I did fall in love with the city and the people. I thought, um, I mean, this is going back to the late nineties, I want to say, or maybe early two thousands. I can't remember. Yeah. I was uh, working for a, a startup company and uh, the owner and I went, we're going to a trade show in Paris and he, he is a lot more adventurous than I am. I am not what you might call uh, all that adventurous. I have to be pushed to do things. He had this idea of renting motor scooters and just driving around Paris. Oh and my I, God. And I, looked at him and I said, Nick, uh, I've never been on a motor scooter in my life, but I see the way people drive around this city and I'm not sure that I, I want to be on a motor scooter. No, no. <laughs> and he is like, you know, he puts on a fake French accent. He's like, Hey Nick, where's your sense of adventure? So I'm like, <laughs> Peer pressure will will get you everywhere with me. So I I did it with, you know, we 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 both rented scooters and we we fueled uh-huh. up. We got the petrol, as they say, and we went all around Paris. Almost died a few times. Um, <laughs> but it was, I mean, certainly a memory I'll never forget. Um, it was a lot of fun to the point where we had Americans coming up to us asking us, like speaking English very slowly because they thought we were French. You know, asking for directions to the metro. <laughs> we kind of had fun just kind of playing along with that. But, um, you know, it, it's a beautiful city and I, I, I long to go back. Um, yeah, it to is. Go back. There's some, something very magical about it. You know, it, I, so every time I go back and, and we, do, we do go, my husband and I go back, you know, at least every couple of years. And we still, I still have friends there from friends that I made even back in 64 I have a friend that's still still around and um every time I go back it's it's I, I just feel like oh my god I'm right I'm inside this jewel box it's sort of it's, a, it's so beautiful and all the activity that's going on but it's hard to it's hard to define it you know it, it's just sort of magical how you feel when you're there it's just uh, you know it's, yeah it's 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 beauty. It's, it's a beautiful city with beautiful people and uh, a great energy to it. I think um, mm-hmm. certainly a great energy to it. 
And uh, thankfully, um, uh, German is not the national language of, of France. So that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, we still have French. Um, you know, Joan, you mentioned earlier that I have a few questions that, that you were prepared yes. for me to ask you towards the end of our conversation. And I'm curious, yeah. uh, since somebody tipped you off or, or you did some homework, um, you might know what some of these questions are. But uh, I always like to say one of the ways I'd like to get to know my guests is through some pop culture questions. So, Joan, I'm curious, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Favorite things to watch on TV? Oh, I Love Lucy was one. Oh, Uh, nothing funny. I mean, pure, pure, pure comedy on that show. And I believe if I have my Lucy trivia correct, first show uh in in u.s uh television history to show a toilet i believe um to show what a toilet on screen oh a to- <laughs> probably and also the first one to show someone pregnant you know, oh she, that's right that's she right was yeah. pregnant and they were going to stop the show and uh desi said very very rightly so you know this is what life is you know <laughs> we you can't do this. She's going to be this is way. Yeah. Right. She, you was, know, she was she pregnant, hiding. Yeah, she pregnant, not hiding it. Yet they still had twin beds in their bedroom. <laughs> yes, that's probably <laughs> true. But I liked uh, uh, the man from Uncle. I think the Mary Tyler. Well, now this is getting a little older. But that's okay. The Mary Tyler Moore show was one of my favorite shows because uh, there she was a woman on her own. You know working on a TV, uh, TV station, right? That's right. Yeah, you can probably yeah. relate a little bit to that. Yeah. Make Room for Daddy. I used to like uh, Danny Thomas. You know, sure. It's funny. Uh, I liked, I like comedy. And, yeah. um, and well, then, of course, a bunch earlier, we would, uh, with my family, we'd always watch the Ed Sullivan show every week. Yeah. Saw the Beatles, you know. That, was, sure that would have been cool. That would have been cool to, to see. Um, what about now? Anything you, you care to watch now? Anything that, that catches your eye now? Oh, my God. There is so much good things in, on TV now. It's just really hard to say that you get caught up in streaming forever. Uh, and we watch, we've watched a, a lot of things. Right now, Right now, I am sort of hooked on, um, on, on a show that most people didn't know about. Uh, and I started watching it just almost because I was curious about uh, our one of our, the new member royalty sort of by marriage, Meghan Markle, uh, Suits. I've suits. been watching oh, yeah, Suits, sure. and it is really it's clever and it's fun to watch, and uh, it's about you know a, a lawyer's office, a, a bunch of lawyers, and, and uh, it, it's very. Um, so I guess each show is about forty minutes long, so it starts out with a with an incredibly impossible case to win. And then somehow by the end of 40 minutes, after a lot of witty things and a lot of things that, that they do to, to turn things around, of course they win the case. <laughs> yeah, so and that's, that's the one where the, uh, the the lead isn't really a lawyer, but he's he's taking the yes. bar and he's exactly. like, he's brilliant, yeah. but he's not. Yeah, not yeah. yeah. Um, very cool. Yeah, my my twin brother's a lawyer. He watches that show, or he just finished uh, watching that show, and he he really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, yeah, what it. about music? What did you like listening to, uh, kind of then and now? Oh, then and now, <laughs> it's really hard. Well, I don't. You know, it, uh, there were all those songs from the fifties and sixties. I remember 
well, I remember when I was 14 years old, for the first time in my life, I was, I went to a bowling alley or something, it's really bowling, and they had these jukeboxes, you know, you could press a button and listen to something. And I pressed the button uh, for Elvis Presley. And this was, you know, when he was just starting out. And I remember, I will always remember hearing that. And I think it was Lonely, The Lonely Hearts, uh, on my way to the Lonely Hotel, Lonely Hearts Hotel, something like that. Hard and I said, too? yeah, that's right. I said, this guy's, he's going to be big. <laughs> and I well, said you, the same You predicted thing. that one, Joan. <laughs> and I said the same thing about that when I saw East of Eden with James Dean. And mm. no one had ever heard about James Dean before. And I said, this guy's going to be big. Of course, he was until he died a few years later. But yeah. other than that. And um, so that's music. I, and I also loved Little Richard. I remember Little Richard uh, starting out. And uh, uh, he was great to dance to. Uh, it was, uh, and, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, all those. And I still listen to that. I, 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 love, I love going da- back uh, on the radio to uh, to the 70s i love listening to oh the 70s. you know it's so funny um i grew up listening to like really loud heavy metal rock and roll like in my teenage God. years and now i find myself driving around with sirius xm 70s on seven God. happier happier than i could ever be listening to it like gordon happy. lightfoot yeah <laughs> it makes you happy listening to that music doesn't it it does, but I just wonder what happened to me. Like I used to, <laughs> I used to listen to like really loud, aggressive music, and now I'm sitting here like hoping the Carpenters come on. <laughs> but it's uh, it's good. I love I love the '70s. I love the '70s. Um, what about um, well, there's a the, the hardest question I typically ask people is uh, is the one where if you could go back in time and, and whisper. Some words of advice into your younger self's ears. What would you tell the younger Joan? The younger, to the, the younger selves. Well, yeah. first, I think, for my, I mean, looking back on my own youth, uh, there were times that I really didn't believe in myself, and I should have. Uh, and so I would say that's the very first thing is believe in yourself. Don't let your parents tell you that you should not, you know, he's not this or that. And uh, I mean, you want to listen to when they say good things, but you have to learn how <laughs> not to, you know, to be able to distinguish what's good and what's bad. You know, um, and so that's one thing I think sometimes people, uh, younger people, are afraid to to move ahead with what who they are. They don't they don't feel comfortable about themselves, or they, you know, they look at some little imperfection. Uh, their body and they can't you know they're afraid to do anything about it and i say you know you can't do it i always remember the thing that uh, woody allen said uh is uh, on a scale of one you know we're saying on a scale of one to ten you know models models will also always say a scale of one to ten i'm a one because i got this little thing wrong and this little thing wrong and it becomes a big thing and actually they're gorgeous you know uh, but woody allen gives himself a 10 because everything works and that's all that's important. Very good. Well, Joan, where can people buy Who Needs Paris? Uh, well, they tell me that if you go to any bookstore, it's either there or you can order it. And hopefully the more people that order it, then they'll start you know, ordering it themselves, I hope. Uh, and, of course, Amazon.com is always, is always there for you. you know, so 
Um, and Joan, if uh, people wanted, two. those are the two. All right. And if people wanted to, any, any bookstore, any bookstore, any bookstore will, will, if they don't have it, they'll order it. Yeah, there you go. And then if, if people want to connect with you, Joan, do you have a website or social media that you're active on? I do. I do. I have a website, uh, which is my name, joanmyerson.com. You just have to remember that Myerson comes with an E, M-E-Y-E-R-S-O-N. Uh, a lot of people get it mixed up with Bess Myerson, who you may have heard in the past was uh, Miss America. And her name, but she was spelled M-Y. So you don't want to do that. It's M-E-Y. <laughs> and um, so there, you could actually, it's a fun website. It will tell you a little bit about Kate. I have the first chapter up there. So, so people can read the first chapter. And there are some, a lot of photos of uh, me in Paris. And, um, and then also there's some information just about me. If they want to, you know, my bio and, and, and uh, other things that uh, pictures that I have, <clears throat> excuse me, from working on the Memorial Day concert. And uh, at the and there's also a link that says contact me. And if you just, you know, click on that link, you can write something with your own email address, and it will come to me. Very good. Well, Joan, I'll put all those links in our show notes so people uh, can just easily tap yes. um, to uh, get to your website. And uh, yeah, Facebook too, Facebook too, people can, you know, find me on Facebook. All right, well, and I've been I've been doing Twitter. I've been trying to do Twitter and Instagram. I'm not so good at that. <laughs> well, Twitter can be a rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, especially now. <laughs> yeah. Well, Joan, thank you so much for stopping by, uncorking a story, and letting me uncork yours. Oh, I mean, pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.